Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Happy Mother's Day, Sherry. Did you have a happy Mother's Day? I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was good. It was good. I got to share it with our oldest son who turned 18 on Sunday as well. So that was pretty cool and special. Okay. And in truth, we're recording this right before Mother's Day. I don't think I'll be able to hold that ruse. Okay. (laughs) But we are going to release it. We are going to release it right after Mother's Day. Our arduous editing process does not take very long as, as our listeners are probably familiar. Yes. But I don't think we should go past Mother's Day without acknowledging it since you know, we have so many listeners that are mothers. And also, we have an awesome guest today. Bridget is joining us. And I happen to know, Bridget, you too are a mother. So yep, did you have I a am. great Mother's Day or are you going to have a great Mother's Day? <laughs> I am anticipating a wonderful Mother's Day. Oh, that's well handled. I love the way you <laughs> answer that. Um, so I, I, I really think it's an important holiday to acknowledge. And Sherry knows I am not like I get into Christmas and I get into I get into Halloween and I get into uh, Thanksgiving and then that's about it. The other nine months, I'm like, you know, I'm not a big Arbor Day guy. I don't think I've ever planted a tree for Arbor Day. Um, and I'm not trying to compare Mother. I'm already getting myself in trouble. I'm not trying to compare Mother's Day to Arbor Day, but I just those those like Father's Day won't be a big deal for me. Well, I'm just gonna because I'm sure Bridget because we're zooming as we're recording this podcast she's seeing my face and i had to bury it in a pillow this was one of the first things you ever said to me about mother's day well you're not my mother yeah because the kids were little and that sounds like something that's an such a jackass move and then just this just this morning though i'm working out and you come in you're like oh my goodness i just heard this comedian talk with his mother about mother's day and how she hates mother how she hates mother's day and she's so exhausted this is how i feel about all holidays you said to me yeah i shouldn't I have like, i shouldn't have brought that up right before mother's day i show. don't it, it just seemed like such a weird thing to say and i'm like well the kids are old enough you don't have to do anything for me for mother's day so well kind of surprised you started out with happy mother's day do you have a great mother's day all excited about it i'm thinking like, about restarting this whole thing <laughs> I, i'm not sure that's <laughs> But uh, no, but I think we, I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge Mother's Day and, and just talk about it off the top, because we know so many of our listeners are mothers and so many people that are impacted by alcoholism and suffer through being married to an alcoholic or mothers. And they got to carry a huge load, uh, not just the normal load of parenting and mothering, but the, you know, the load increases when you're in an alcoholic marriage. So Big tip of the cap and um, happy Mother's congratulations Day and happy Mother's Day all women. to all, all women. I think Mother's Day should be a celebration of all women, because even if you aren't a mother, you still are a caretaker in so many ways to people that you even work with or like you mentioned, your spouse. I'm sure Bridget's thinking, do I need to be here for this? <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Bridget, you, you, you're a mother. Yes, now, I am. Tell our listeners how many kids you have. I have three adult kids. Um, we survived. They survived to adulthood, which is one of my proudest moments. So I've got two sons, 
and a daughter, 23, 26, and 29. So since we're recording just before Mother's Day, what is the likelihood that they are going to remember to call you on Mother's Day or see you on Mother's Day? I don't know what the situation is exactly. Um, it is highly likely because I already know that they're taking me to the beach for the day. Look at that. You know, yeah. that right there is a tribute to you as a mother. You are such a good mother that you raised kids that are going to take their mama to the beach on Mother's Day. Mm. That is fantastic. <laughs> I wish you would raise yeah. me because I'm not that good about this stuff. But we have a tradition too, Bridget. We, um, Sherry, I don't know. Are you still into this tradition? It started out as your well, idea. Since it was next birthday, old? I thought maybe we could go somewhere else because it's kind of getting old, but you know. Sherry's a big hot dog fan, and we go to the hot dog connoisseur. Hot dog connoisseur. Oh, to the best hot dog place in Denver. Now I don't know that there's a lot of competition not, for being the best hot dog place in Denver. I'm not even gonna like make our listeners, but I think if you're from the Midwest, you know what area the best hot dogs come from. Chicago. Yeah. Oh, it's a okay. So it's a Chicago, it's a Chicago hot dog place. Hot, so you're going to the beach, and yet still we are dominating the conversation about our <laughs> little hot dog. But I guess we're going somewhere else. It's also our I think we're going birthday. there because Nick said he likes it. So oh, okay, yeah, all right. Since it's his birthday, well, Bridget, I hope you have slash had a wonderful time with your family at the beach on on Mother's Day. That's awesome. I, I'm sure I will. So for those listeners who listen right after podcasts are released then you are listening to this shortly after Mother's Day. We hope you had a great one as well. And if you're just listening to this sometime in the future, well, sorry for that first seven or eight minute preamble that you just had to endure. Bridget, let's talk about your experiences with alcohol and let's go way back to the beginning. When you were growing up, was alcohol a part of your family life? Like, was it around when you were a kid? Um, yes and no. Um, I come from an alcoholic family of origin. Um, my father had a drinking problem um, and did die um, from complications from liver disease. So it's been um, something that has been a thread in my life all along. Um, I had an uncle who was very, very sick with alcohol use disorder. And then my best friend's father growing up was also um, sick with alcohol use disorder. And so um, I, was, I was pretty much surrounded by it growing up. Did you know what was, I mean, obviously there's an age at which you're not sure what's going on. And then there's, there had to be a coming of awareness for you when it's all around you to recognize that alcohol what was, was what was doing this harm to people do, do you is there any was there like an aha moment for you or was it just always there and and you know you don't really remember a uh, an incident when you didn't understand how alcohol was impacting people well in my childhood history so I had the uncle and my um my best friend's father who had the problem and then um, my brothers are seven and eight years older than me. So the, the issue with my father didn't really begin to be an issue until my brothers had left the home. And it was just myself and my mom and my dad. Um, and my dad 
um, was trying to start his own business and run his own business. And that's when his drinking really got out of control. But it was an interesting dynamic in the family because my brothers didn't experience what I experienced. So it's been um, a little difficult, I think, for them to understand because for them, um, dad would drink and he was just this fun guy and, you know, nothing unusual, but it wasn't until it really reached a crescendo during my teenage years. Um, and so it wasn't something really to realize until it got to that point. And then I, I, I knew enough about it that I saw it right away. What is it like with your brothers now? Do they recognize that what you went through was real? Like have, has it gotten to the point where it's undeniable and, and they can see it? Um, well, I have a very odd family dynamic now because I have one brother who is, so my oldest brother is um, not someone I have much contact with because he embodies a lot of the things that I have tried to get out of my life. He's not a happy person and he's, um, I love him. He's my brother. I send him happy birthday texts and answer his call most of the time when he calls, but I don't go out of my way. Um, and because both of our parents died when they were quite young, um, my mother also died of ALS. So we were, um, and she died in her fifties. So for a long time, it's just been us. And that's really not something that we talk about so much. I think it's just, for me, I'm just kind of tired of like my life rotating around who has a substance use disorder right now. Mm, um, sure. And, and it very much does ripple through my family because my, my oldest brother, who I have limited contact with, his son struggles with it as well. Um, and I have concerns that some of, that particularly one of my children may be showing signs of it. And it's, it's such a generational issue. And, um, going through this experience for me has really given me this calling that I am struggling to find the answer to how we break these generational patterns. And the answer has not come to me yet, but I am, I am still determined to find some way to do something to break these patterns for other people. I, I don't know what that's going to look like. Well, I'm not sure what the end game will be like for you, but you're doing a part of it right here and right now talking about it. I, you know, I think is the, the best and only way that we can change the messaging and, and break those generational patterns. I, I couldn't agree more with you about that. Well, so go ahead. Well, it, and that's kind of been like from the beginning, I, and I, I think you might remember back to our first meeting, this was a topic as well, but when I was a child or a teenager and um, my late teenage years, when I was in like 11th, 12th grade, I would just flat out tell my mother, dad's an alcoholic. And it would be, don't say that. And I'm like, it's the truth. Like my earliest interactions with the disease has been like, you got to talk about it. You got to bring it into the open. You got to be honest about it. And then of course, when I met you guys, I was dealing with um, issues with my own marriage where my husband would get very upset if I confided in any friends or or 
anything about it. And I remember there's been multiple discussions about, is it my story to tell? And although your first thought might be, it's not my story to tell, I didn't ask to be written into the story. So, um, and I honestly do feel like as long as we hide the effects of alcoholism on families and generations and, and just society as a whole, we're going to keep repeating the same patterns. And we've got, just got to be real about it, even if it's painful. Well, again, I don't know what the end game is for you as far as helping to break these patterns, but you are an ambassador for this. You, you are very well-spoken already. We're 15 minutes in or whatever. Um, very impressed with your enthusiasm for this. T tell me, Bridget, what was it like for you as you know, you hit your teen years and your early 20s and people around you are drinking in your peer group. This is not just your parents and your uncle, you know, you know, people that are older yeah. at this point. Did you experiment or were you afraid of it? What was that like for you? Um, early on, I was um, very paranoid about developing the same problem because I did see how there was you know, I, I know that there were some issues with my grandfather's even, you know, I, so I, I recognized that there's risk there. Um, but for the most part, I was a normal college kid. And on my 21st birthday, I did what 21 year olds do. And, um, and, and I still enjoy a glass of wine and a cocktail occasionally and everything, but I'm very, I'm always very hyper aware of my drinking. And I wish it wasn't like that. Like, I'm not that it's a problem. That's not what I mean. But just like, it's so ingrained in my life story that I, it is something that I pay really close attention to. But I do, I do still enjoy an alcoholic beverage. But for a while, I was afraid of it. That's interesting. Tell, tell us how you met your husband was alcohol part of that courtship. Um, what was oh, yeah. the, the early time with you guys like? So we met in college. We um, are both pharmacists. Um, we were on campus at um, UNC Chapel Hill, and there was a pharmacy fraternity. And um, a, a professional fraternity is different than a social fraternity, or you know. Um, but we still had parties and things. And he was the president of the fraternity when I first came into contact with it. And um, he caught my eye right away. And um, he was shy. He was like, when he finally asked me out, I remember saying, no, that wasn't so hard, was it? Mm -hmm. um, so um, he, it was, I very much pursued him. Um, and so we actually got married right after he graduated from college and I was still in college. And um, because of the story of my childhood and my dad's issues with alcohol and all of that, I really didn't know if I wanted to have kids. And um, I can't say unfortunately, because I don't know where I'd be without her, but um, our daughter entered our lives before my degree did. Um, but you know, and it was hard and we struggled and, and we've, we've been a very independent couple. We have not had a lot of family support or um, even family close by, but that's, that's kind of how it started. And we were um, 
you know, freshly out of school with little kids and trying to find our way. And, um, and it really wasn't an issue then. So it wasn't till about um, we got, we had moved to um, the area that we live in now. And that was around 1999 when we moved here and we'd been married six, no, eight years. And um, we'd, we'd lived in our home. We'd lived in multiple homes. And there was just a point where I started noticing. I don't, I don't know. I can't even tell you the pattern that I noticed. But I'd started having concern. And, um, you know, we've at this point, we've got three kids. And we've got big jobs. And um, living in a rather affluent area and. I, I threw him a 40th birthday party, a surprise party. And at, all of his coworkers were there and family and everything. And then his coworkers wheel out his birthday present, which was a kegerator. Oof. And I remember that that was right around the time when I was starting to get that little rumble of panic about the situation. And then his brother, um, his younger brother lives here in town where we were at the time. And um, they got into the habit, the, the hobby of brewing craft beer and stuff in our garage. And, and I was becoming more and more concerned. Um, I remember my best friend from childhood whose dad was an alcoholic. She and I are still in contact. And I remember um, she came to town to visit me and I was just like, this is, this is going somewhere. I don't want it to go. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel like this is not where I, this is not the life I want to live. And I'm concerned what's happening. Um, and then as time went on, um, he got laid off from his job and I was not seeing, this was in 2014 I wasn't seeing alcohol become a big issue then. I mean, it was, it was definitely like an undercurrent happening in our lives. But when he got laid off from his job, our youngest son was a senior and was about to start his senior year. Our middle child was literally two days away from starting college. And our daughter was in college. And so we're looking at the situation and now it's an expensive we're time to be laid off, yeah? Yeah, and we have the big mortgage. We have soon-to-be two kids in college. Um, and our youngest son was on track to get some pretty nice scholarships um, where he was. And, of course, with money being a concern at this point, we're like, oh, you know, we've got to keep him where he is if at all possible. So um, that was six months of darkness after he lost his job because he sat at the kitchen table and I didn't realize how much he was drinking then, but looking back on it, I see it because he would, he would nap at the table and he would look for jobs and he would, it was just a dark, depressive time. Um, and so was finally the, was the layoff. Did it, was it just like a, um, uh, job cut. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? W was it related to his alcohol at all? I, I don't think it was related to his alcohol directly, but I think it was directed. It was partially due to his attitude 
which was because of that, what the alcohol was doing to him. Um, okay. He was in a position where he was a manager and there was a second manager and they were kind of over different segments of the location. And the younger manager was cross-trained, but he refused to be cross-trained. And he had a, a little attitude about the fact that they sent the younger guy for training on this equipment. And then they expected him to just be taught by the younger guy. And he kind of had an attitude about it and really wasn't being a team player. And um, so, I mean, from a business point of view, I understand completely why he was the one they chose to let go. Um, that's, that's so interesting. So often, you know, I'm going to relate this to something morbid, but we, we've talked on the podcast about how the, when somebody passes, sadly, the cause of death will also often say something maybe about their heart or, or a cancer or something like that. But the only the people closest know that, for instance, we, we're, we're very close. We have a friend whose mother passed and she had a very treatable form of cancer, which is the cause of death on the death certificate. But had she, but her mother was an alcoholic and her liver was shot. And so she couldn't withstand the chemo and the radiation mm-hmm. that would have, you know, very treatable, would have saved her life. So the cause of death is cancer, but really, you know, we all, you know, those that are in the know know that it was alcohol. This is a great example of that in a less morbid setting, but job loss, not directly related to alcohol, which is, you know, that's a tough one too for an employer because you're supposed to help people find treatment and get help if you recognize that alcohol is the problem. Yeah. But when it creates, like you said, bad attitudes, lack of willingness to to do with what's the next step in the job progression, uh, yeah. that's that's it's for us, for those of us that are in the know, that can be easily attributed to alcohol. But um, you know, it, it's it's hidden, so it's another way that we're not being honest, so we're not talking openly exactly so i love that you included that the other thing i want to highlight that you mentioned you talked about the kegerator and then you talked about brewing craft beer in the garage these are things that for me the very similar story i had a kegerator for how long did i have that sherry three years or something i don't know i've blocked out the the kegerator years i feel like maybe it was it was like two years i don't feel like you had it as long did, did you have the same experience, Bridget, that you can't, um, you can't count when someone's drinking off of a kegerator? Uh, like you have no idea true. how much they're drinking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You just walk past, top off your glass. And yeah. yeah. So, so um, these are things that at the time, because of our society and our cultural reverence, for alcohol, they seem like the coolest thing ever. Like I'm really getting into this. This is a hobby. This is something fun. And now, you know, it's a huge red flag for me, but our society doesn't see it at all as a red flag. They think you're, you're cultured and awesome. If you are into like one of my cousins uh, owned a bar in New York for a while that was specialized in tequilas. And I'm like, Oh my God, isn't tequila for when you just want to get smashed or you're, you know, you're doing gross lick it, slam it, suck it shots, but this, the bar specialized in tequila. And I thought that was so cool at the time, but now, you know, these are, these are the things that we now in hindsight see as red flags. So I, right. I think that the kegerator moment in the craft brewing, that's a big deal that most people are just kind of like you were, you were kind of like, eh, I don't like the way this feels, but I don't know, maybe, maybe yeah. it's not a big deal. All right. So, sorry, I interrupted. Let's, 
let's keep going. So, so the dark, the six months of darkness while he's looking for a job and, and drinking through the process, where does it go from there? Um, well, he received two job offers or two interests. One was an offer that they made him um, without ever meeting him. I think there might've been a zoom meeting or something. Um, and it was in new Orleans and it was just as a staff position. They weren't going to help us move. It wasn't going to be anything like that. And then he also got an offer for a job in Texas, um, in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, and they paid moving expenses and all that. So for us with two kids in college and all of that, it just made sense. But he came to me and he said, um, your, our, our son's about to start his senior year and he's going to get, you know, I had expressed concerns about Texas doesn't seem to have any scholarship programs run by the state like, like we do. And um, it was his idea for me and my youngest son to stay behind um, where we were until graduation. And at the time I said to him, I want to go on record this is your suggestion. This is your idea. I don't ever want this to be thrown back at me that I deserted you or I didn't come with you. And it was foreshadowing because fast forward years in the midst of um, finding every reason to blame me for the sorry state of his life that came up. And I said, wait a minute. I think we've discussed this before. That was your idea. You can't blame me for that. So, so there, there was a period of time to rewind when he went to take his new job in Texas and I stayed behind on the East Coast with our youngest um, until he graduated and he did obtain the scholarships and then he went off to college. And at that time I joined my husband in Texas and during this time period, I don't know if it was a fact of all the calories and the alcohol or, or what, um, but he had managed to gain an absurd amount of weight and he was then morbidly obese. So he had been sitting in Texas um, by himself, drinking, eating, just really letting his life go to hell in a handbasket. And um, and it was that point when it got at the point where I came to Texas, um, it really began to become a crisis and there was no, there was no avoiding the issue anymore. It was, it was very clear. Um, so he ended up having something called avascular necrosis, which there are two causes for avascular necrosis, excessive use of alcohol. And we don't know why those are the two <laughs> causes. Um, and so, so at this point he is 365 pounds and he's having to use a walker because his hip collapsed. He lost the ball of his femur. Basically um, it just disintegrated. So the jagged end of his femur was in his hip joint, which was extremely painful for him. Um, so he was in need of hip replacement surgery. 
And he was also pursuing gastric bypass. And um, at the point where his hip collapsed, his orthopedic surgeon said, I would operate on, on you this week and fix your hip, but that gastric bypass could save your life. And I really need you to do that first. So he had the gastric bypass. He had some complications from it. A very big thing that I wish people knew who were considering that um, surgery is that a very high percentage of patients who have gastric bypass um, develop a problem with alcohol after the surgery. And of course, for him, he was already on the way. So it just spiraled it out of control because your, your stomach is small and the alcohol goes right past your stomach directly to where it gets absorbed. There's no like time that it's sitting there and whatever's happening to it, it just goes straight through and straight into your bloodstream and straight to your liver. And um, it takes very little alcohol to cause the same effect as what you would have had before your surgery um, by drinking a lot more. That's um, fascinating. I had never heard that before. I didn't either. That's wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and then, so he's at the point, our, our son who was in college, our middle child has joined us. He actually went down there with his dad and was taking time off from college and was helping him. And I found out after the fact that um, my son would drive my husband back and forth to work because he couldn't drive um, with his hip the way it was. And they'd stop at the liquor store. And because he had to walk with a walker, my son had to go in the liquor store with him and carry his vodka out. And uh, that, that it just makes me sick. Like, I, I wish... I wish I had known that was happening. Like as a mom, that's like, uh, I don't know. That just, that bothers me so badly. Um, mm -hmm. So when, when I finally got to Texas, um, was there for the summer, he had the gastric bypass at the end of September, I believe. Um, and he became sick. And at this point he had become disabled and couldn't work. And I said, why are we here? Why are we in Texas isolated from everyone we know with you sick and in bad health? I want to move home. This is ridiculous. If you can't work, why am I here? Um, so we did start heading back to the East Coast. Um, shortly after his gastric bypass, we were back on the East Coast. Um, and it really... So it, it just spiraled into such chaos and there was no denying the situation anymore. It was finding an empty vodka bottle here, finding an empty vodka bottle there. Um, was he started, hiding it completely? Was like, did you know he was drinking, but you just didn't know how much until you'd find the bottles or was he yes. hiding it all together? Like there's this sixth sense that, you develop, and I think it comes from being surrounded by people who use alcohol and have a problem with it. But something about, and I could always tell with my dad too, something about the way his expression would change or the, the way his eyes were or 
just the hardness of his face before he said a word to me, I could tell if he was drinking and he would lie and deny. And, um, and then I'd find the bottles and it, it was just like this constant cycle of lies and deceit and blame and, and just chaos. Um, so I got us seeing a life coach that one of my girlfriends recommended to me. And it brought out some of the oddest behavior in him. Um, there was a trigger point where I think the inevitability of me leaving became something I couldn't ignore. And that's when I was traveling for work and um, somehow he, he found this bag of items. And so I'm up north somewhere and over the phone, he's telling me about these things he found in my closet. And am I living a double life and what am I doing? And I have no idea what he's talking about because I don't know what this bag of stuff is that he's found. And um, he sends me a picture and I have never had a good memory just, just from, I, I think it's just a symptom of childhood trauma that I just don't form memories. Well, I just have never been able to. And um, he sent me a picture of it. I sent it to my daughter and I said, do you have any idea what this is? And she says, mom, that's yours. I used to go in your closet and put that on when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's the only thing I could see on the top of the pile. So he was continuing to see the life coach while I was working. And he took this bag of things to the life coach and dumped them out on his floor and said, what is this stuff? What is she hiding from me? And I, I was mortified because this is a professional that we're working with. This isn't your brother or a friend. This is, um, so I get back and I have a session by myself with the life coach. And I had asked my husband, where are the things that you took in? He goes, I gave them to him. I asked him to throw them away. Um, mm -hmm. So I go in for my next session and I'm, and at this point, I can tell when I'm talking with the life coach, he's like, this is crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and he said, well, would you like to see it? I still have it. So he gives me the bag of items. And in this bag of um, unmentionables, according to my husband, was a travel pillow, a one-piece bathing suit, um, a bag that um, had come from my mom's house, which was like a kind of like a lingerie bag or a bag that you would would keep nice, nice silky things in, but it had nothing in it. It was just a bag that had been my mom's. Um, a pair of silky pajamas that um, just crazy stuff, just nothing at all like what he was implying. Um, So it just so happened that my, I had a girlfriend who was in town that day and um, 
when I got the stuff from the life coach, I didn't go home. I had made plans to spend the weekend with her and I've never been so, that is the angriest I think I've ever been in my life. It's when I realized that he was literally becoming insane. He Hmm. was losing his mind and, um, you could see it. The life coach could see it. I mean, did, did, did that make you feel, I don't know. What's the word? Um, like you weren't going crazy when the life coach is saying, uh, you know, I don't know what he's making yeah, a big deal about yeah. this stuff. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, I had been in a little bit of denial. I did not want to believe that he was an alcoholic. I did not want to believe that this was happening. Um, and, and it was just reaching a crescendo point where it's screaming at you and there's nothing you can do to avoid the facts any longer. Um, and the life coach told me, said, my concern is once you decide you want to leave one time, once you consider it, it becomes that much easier to consider it the next time. And eventually you end up going through with it. Um, and he, he was right. So was he, was he right. was his, kind of modus operandi was he actively trying to save the marriage or help you save the marriage because it sounds like he was concerned when he would talk to you about the potential for leaving yeah i mean that was kind of what we went in there you know i um i had told him ahead of time that i'm concerned that my husband has a drinking problem and it's affecting our marriage and we just need we need somewhere we can talk about our goals and what we want to do together and how we're going to get this back on track um did you actively try to get your husband into recovery when, or once you kind of came to the realization that this is, this is serious? I mean, I, I want to paint the picture right here. I, yeah, you had the inclination that maybe leaving is the way to go. And there's this concern that once that thought is in your head, it's, it's not going to well, leave, but you were still trying to save things. Yeah. In all honesty, that, that was anger based. I was so angry and humiliated by what he had done with my personal things that weren't even like intimate personal things. They were just items, but the way he had made me feel about it, like I had done something wrong and like I was dirty and deceitful and, and I was so angry. And that's what fueled that, that, thought of leaving. So I wasn't serious about it at that point. I was just so angry. And um, it it got to the point. So I I told you that he was 365 pounds. He started losing weight. He developed jaundice. Um, There was an entire family vacation to the beach where he slept through the whole thing. And he was bright yellow and um, just, it, it's, it's hard to think about those times and had to be scary. Um, he continued to say that the reason he was losing so much weight, granted the, the goal of a gastric bypass is to lose weight, but he got down to 130 pounds. Oh my God. And he would tell, he just kept insisting that they messed up his gastric bypass, that it was, um, that they did something wrong. They took too much of his stomach. They just, all of these reasons why, 
And it was becoming clearer and clearer to me that he was transforming into a liver patient in front of my eyes. Like mm. the lack of muscle mass, the sunken cheeks, the sunken eyes, the lack of critical thinking skills, just the, um, he was becoming a different version of himself gradually on a weekly basis, just, um, it sounds like he, it sounds like the paranoia was overwhelming him as well at this point. I mean, um, about the bag of items and the gastric bite, they took too much of his stomach. It was constantly something. He was sick. He was sick somehow. He he didn't feel good. There's something wrong with his gallbladder. He's it, it was all of these reasons why his health was bad, other than the obvious reason. Sure. Um, and it, I had told him, he still to this day says that I blindsided him when I left. I had told him multiple times over the course of our 32 years next week, because the divorce isn't final yet, marriage, um, that I would not live like that. That if that continued to be the life that he wanted us to live, that I would not be part of it and I would be gone. Um, but I don't think he even remembers me saying that. Like there's so much, the hard thing for me has been, there's so much that happened that he can't ever make amends for because he doesn't even remember what happened. And um, we've tried to stay cordial and to um, be cooperative with each other through the divorce process. And we've done a lot of moving, moving things from here to storage and from there to storage and from storage to his apartment and storage to my apartment, just um, all kinds of things. And he said to me, I, I was just trying to make conversation. And he said, when are you guys going to realize I've been sober for a year? And I looked at him, I said, as if that's all it takes, mm. like because he's been sober for a year, but because of the horrible damage he's done to his body, um, he had gone through a period of time where he was having to have paracentesis done every week. And they were pulling 15 liters of fluid out of his abdomen every single week. And so there was a procedure he wanted to have done that would make his vasculature um, bypass his liver in one spot that was happening because his liver was so scarred the blood couldn't get through so it would the fluid would push out into the extracellular space and um there was a procedure that he could have done to to fix that but the kicker is the procedure means that you will have a problem with ammonia for the rest of your life and you have to take a drug called lactulose which is a laxative to flush the ammonia out. And if you don't flush the ammonia out, you seem drunk. Because ammonia drives makes makes you crazy in your head. It's toxic yeah. to your brain. Yeah. So it was this constant, even when he had stopped drinking, he didn't like the medicine, so he wouldn't take it. And so he still seemed drunk anyway. It, well, and in the ammonia on your brain, that's going to leave lasting impact. Like that can, 
that can become permanent, right? So that's not something to be messing around with. And and that's the thing. I I see he used to be a very smart man and it and I hate to say this, but he's he's just not anymore. And um he's very um unpredictable with you know, some texts will be friendly and then he'll shut me out and he'll be nasty on texts and there's no level status where this is where he is. It's, it's constantly up and down. Um, but he has moved two states away now um, to be closer to his older brother. And um, my kids are pretending to be okay with it. Um, even as adults, they're not. My daughter's really struggling with it. Um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just ready to start living again without the shadow of all of that chaos over my head. We've, we've talked a lot about your husband and the progression and your reaction to it, but let's talk a little bit more specifically about you. Before you made okay. the decision, before you made the decision to divorce, you know, you, you set up this life coach, you were trying to save things. Did you do the kind of boundary setting that we often talk about? Um, tell us a little bit about what you tried to do for yourself to make it livable, because okay. there's a period before, uh, you know, before the divorce where you're, you're trying to figure out how you can coexist. That's when we met you. Right. And so I had printed out a list of AA meetings and given to him and he, um, he was receptive to it, but he didn't go. And I, I was, I was still very reactive to the things that were happening. I had no boundaries. I wasn't, I, I was just floating along, just like trying to keep breathing at that point. Um, and you l literally not knowing what was, what each day was going to bring. And he finally did start going to AA. And um, at that point, of course, we're getting close to where um, the COVID nightmare started and AA meetings started going virtual. And so <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing because he would say to me, I'm doing AA now, but I could see the two sides of him. He's going to AA and still drinking and still telling the people on AA that he's been sober for 90 days. And then he's got vodka in the house and, and his mother would ask me, she'd be like, he's doing AA. Doesn't that make you happy? And I'm like, he's doing AA. He's doing the program. He's not working the program. He's showing up to say he's going, but he's not doing the work. And I finally reached the point where I looked at myself. I'm not happy with how I'm reacting to this. So I started searching out resources for me. Um, I started therapy. Um, I found Echoes. Um, I joined another um, Love Over Addiction group. I was just like searching for everything I could find at that point. I bought books. I started reading books. And, um, you know, learning to set boundaries when you've never had any is very difficult. And it's 
you have to be kind to yourself because some, there's something about the addictive mind that just knows how to reel you in and push the right buttons to get you out of your zone of critical thinking and you just react. And it was from therapy and journaling. Journaling, I think, saved my life, honestly. Um, and that was something my therapist had encouraged me to do. But therapy, journaling, echoes, you guys. Um, and it, it was like everywhere I turned, I was meeting people who were going through similar things. And I don't know, it was like one day a, a switch just flipped and I am not doing this anymore. And um, I remember, so what ended up happening was it got to the point where I was just so tired of seeing him pretend to do the right things, but not really doing them. And meanwhile, there was still the chaos at home. I use that word a lot. It seems like that defines the last five years, but. Um, well, would, would you call him out when he was going to AA meetings, but you were finding a vodka bottle? Did you call him out on that? And how did he so, respond? So <laughs> he was in our office because we both worked from home, which added a whole new level of concern to the situation. Um, because there was alcohol readily available all the time for him while he was working. And yeah, I don't, I don't think you're overusing the word chaos. I think, I yeah. think that's appropriate. Um, and so he had his AA meeting and he was in the office. And I, he's always had this characteristic where when he's on the telephone, he talks really loud. So I was in our family room and I could hear everything he was saying. And he was in charge of chips that day. And he went into this discussion about each of the chips. Do we have somebody for 30 days? Do we have somebody for 60 days? And then he, he got the 90 days. Like, this was the hard one for me. This was the one I struggled with. But once you get to 90 days, it gets a little easier. And meanwhile, I knew he had been drinking. And so something happened and we had another altercation, argument, um, conflict. And I said, and I brought that up to him. I said, you're not even, you're you're lying to the people in AA. This is, you're not doing, you're making them think you're doing the right thing when you're not. And of course that became, why are you eavesdropping? That's a private conversation. And instead of dealing with the fact, it was deflecting that Deflect, I am yeah. um, And that was really when we started coasting into, I spent, I spent months how am I going to do this? How it, we've got student loans for our kids because when when he got laid off, we ended up having to take a loan out to send. We had sent my daughter to college and not and made her not have to get loans, so we didn't feel like it was fair for my son to have to get loans. So we were trying to provide him the same benefits. So we had gotten a loan, so we had student loans for him, and we had um, debts from having moved back home and from the time he was laid off when we were having to use credit and and I was just like how how what is my way out how do I get out and I just I didn't see an escape and it's it's a similar story and I think somebody posted in one of my groups um it may have been echoes you know like those of you that have left how did you do it where did you go and you know, that was about eight months before I actually left. It had gotten really bad. And 
my two sons and myself and my son's girlfriend were all living in the home. And we went out looking for rentals one day. We were trying to find a way to get out. And then, um, you know, then he showed some kind of improvement and things calmed down and we ended up staying. And, you know, I was like constantly looking for how can I afford to get out? How can I do this? And then the real estate market went crazy and the stars aligned. We were in a a, um, neighborhood that still had construction going on and the builder canceled all contracts. So there were no new houses for people to build. So that made us, it made it possible for us to sell our house, whereas we couldn't as long as they were still building. Um, And we got more than we owed for the house and I paid off all the debts. And I went to him and said, I want my own apartment. Um, This isn't working for me. I need, I don't know if we can save our marriage, but, and I'm not gonna know until I get out of this and on my own and decide if I want it back. So he moved into one apartment and I moved into another. And I remember when it first happened, he kept trying to kiss me. Like we, he would bring something over to my apartment or I would bring something over to his apartment. He kept trying to kiss me and I just, Oh, it just didn't feel right. It just, I I wasn't interested. And he brought that up. And I wish wish our listeners could see the look on your face (laughs) when you talk about him trying to kiss you. I think they would be able to understand more vividly exactly what you're saying. But I, I'm sure but, we understand. But he, he said to me, he's like, you used to kiss me good night every night. And it hit me. I'm, and I looked at him. I said, I, I haven't kissed you good night in six months. I haven't. Like, he got to the point where I just lost all respect for him. I don't mm-hmm. think you can. I wasn't able to be vulnerable with him because I couldn't count on him, count on him to protect my feelings. I, I lost my attraction for him because he just became the shell of the person he used to be. And he became, he was a mean drunk and he was angry and he would lie. And I remember one night I tried to sit down and have a conversation with him, told him I wanted to talk to him. And he sat down and I thought it was like, I always had to pick my moment. When is he not drinking? Is he sober? Is he drunk? And I thought he was sober and we sat down and as soon as we started talking, I knew I'd picked a wrong time. And, and I said, it's for me, it's the lies. You, it's just the lies. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he says, I lie all the time. I lie to everybody. And I was like, yeah, I know that's mm-hmm. a problem. You know, um, he's almost bragging about it. And it's one of the main yeah. things that's driving you away. Yeah. And uh, then it got really crazy. And, and once he realized that we were, I mean, it was just a combination of things. The ammonia is affecting his brain. He's realized that we're separating, that we're divorcing. Um, he starts telling people that I'm insane, that I have bipolar disorder, that I'm off my medication, just insane, insane stories about me to his mother, who, of course, you know, we're coming up on Mother's Day. Mothers, we want to believe our children. We, Absolutely. We go to the end of the earth to try and prove that they're telling us the truth when they're not. Um, 
and I, I found myself having to convince my children. He told our children that I was mentally ill and off of my antipsychotics. Um, it, I ended up having lunch with him one day and I said, I, I, I just want to know what medication is it that you think I'm supposed to be taking that I've stopped? And he named it and it was a common antipsychotic. And I said, I, I've never taken that medication in my life. Like, he's like, you have it? I'm like, no, I've never been on that medication. Uh, yeah, so majorly delusional. Yes, very yeah. much so. And, you know, it's, it's really a tragic story because I thought we would be together till we died. Um, even right now, I've just moved into a new apartment and I have two of my favorite pictures of him on my fridge from the good days, from the man that I still love. When I look at that man and I think of how we, we laughed and we had fun and we traveled and we raised our kids and we went to soccer tournaments and, you know, the, the, the times we spent together, I still love that man whose photo is on my refrigerator, mm. but he's gone and... I have to be okay with that. I have to just, I have to be okay with the fact that he's not coming back. We talk a lot about the importance of grieving the living, grieving the situation that you had or that you wanted to have. And that being part yeah. of the process of being able to move on and recover yourself. It sounds like that's something that you've spent some, some time with. I think that's so interesting that you've got a tribute to your husband as you want to remember him uh, still on the refrigerator that's that's really something has that you know, grieving process been something that you've consciously gone through um my therapist has talked to me a lot about that about how i am i am grieving the life i thought i would have um and that is very true um i you know i i would have I made the mistake. I just spent four weeks abroad with my daughter and I made the mistake of telling her one night that I still love her dad and she, she couldn't hear it. She didn't, you know, she's 29 or her parents are divorcing and I would have thought that that would be received differently than it was. But um, I do not love the man he is now. I do not love the life we lived the past, the last year of our marriage, but um, we had dreams. We had plans. We, we started our family really young and we always said, that's okay. They'll all be out of the house early and then we can travel and then we can do the things we want to do. And, um, and that's not going to happen. So instead I'm living the life that I thought we would live. I'm doing the traveling. I'm, I'm determined that I am going to have the life I planned. I just won't have it with him beside me. One of the true delights for Sherry and I for being a part of the Echoes of Recovery group is that people in the group connect, you know, directly outside of the group and they meet right. up and sometimes they drive a few hours to meet at a coffee shop that's halfway in between the places that they live. 
and and I don't think ever have we been told in advance that the meeting was going to happen. But the cool thing is in our little private Facebook group, they'll post a picture of the two of them. We're like, Oh, wow. You know, she lives in Idaho and you know, she lives in Kansas and that's really cool that they, they met in the middle somewhere. We saw a picture one day, you just mentioned that you traveled abroad. So I don't feel like I'm uh, talking out of turn here. We saw a picture one day of our dear friend Bridget and another one of our dear Echoes friends at a cafe in Paris, France. And uh, <laughs> as you can tell from her accent, that isn't where Bridget's from. And uh, no, that not. was the coolest thing ever that you, yes. I know that I know that there were other reasons you were in France <laughs> other than to meet up with our, our other friend who's part of our Echoes group, but it was pretty cool that you had a transatlantic yeah. flight that resulted in, in meeting someone in person. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Well, you know, you make such strong connections with other people in this situation. And I think it's because with very few exceptions, our stories ring the same. They, they, there's so many similarities. Um, the, there's another, um, I can't remember if she used her name on the podcast, but there's another member of our group who, um, whose husband has, um, had a liver transplant and gone through health issues. And, and I have really connected with her, even though I don't talk to her very often when we have talked, it's just been like, we share so many similarities that there's an automatic connection. And it's that way with everybody in the group. Yeah. Yeah. That's Barbara. She did use her, her name when she came on the podcast. So if any listeners want to search for the episode to which Bridget is referring, um, yeah, that, that's an excellent idea. I want to ask you about the age of your kids and how that factored in. Was the, the fact that they were adults when the separation and the now divorce that you're going through took place, was that a factor for you? Was, that, was there some relief in the fact that they weren't small children um, and that the, the divorce would include co-parenting at that age? Yes and no. It is one of my, yes, it was easier to go through the, the divorce process and the separation and all of that with the kids not being in the household. But it is one of my biggest regrets that I let them grow up in that and that I mm-hmm. did not leave at the first moment when I became uncomfortable with what was happening. Um, I would, if I were able to go back and do it again, I would hope that somehow I could find the strength to do those things, to make the effort to get them away from it. Wow. Here's how I know that you are going to fulfill your mission to spread the word about recovery being possible for the loved ones of alcoholics and how important it is for this message to be out there. I know you haven't figured out exactly what that's going to look like for you, but I, that is not the answer I expected to that question. I thought you would say, yeah, they were adults. So it made it way easier, but you've just given hope to people that are stuck in one of those relationships with small children and recognizing that they don't have to wait the 10 years that they're waiting until the kids are out of the house to make the right move. For them. And we're not here encouraging divorce over staying or staying over divorce. Each situation is unique and there's a right answer 
in each situation that's different than the right answer in a different one. But if you're if you're at the point where separation is the right move for you, divorce is the right move for you, you've just delivered a really important message that waiting until the kids get out of high school, which a lot of us think about, mm-hmm. um, that's in many cases not not the right move. Do it when it's when it's time when you know. We always say in echoes, you'll know when you know. And that isn't yeah. something Sherry and I made up. A lot of a lot of people that participate in the group will say that. You just know when you know. And that's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. That's oh. a really important message for our younger families. Yeah. And I think that that is you lending your voice to the idea that you want to break this generational Absolutely. cycle of um, alcohol abuse. And um, so I think that's a good testament that you sometimes just have to put the next generation first. And yeah. so I, I applaud that. That would be very hard. But I also know, um, you know, having parents that grew up together, <clears throat> you know, you're growing up and you have this idea that your parents are going to be together forever. And then as a young adult, there is that separation. So I'm sure it's been, it's hard yeah. in any situation. So yeah, it's choose your heart, right? Yep. It's, nothing's easy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, Bridget, it has been an absolute delight having you on the podcast for sure, but an absolute delight to get to know you and call you a friend. Um, we love you. having you in our lives and it's great to see you. And thank you for coming thank on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Keep telling the story. It helps people. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.